0: People were really eager to find a way in and to begin to feel comfortable talking about death. I think there's so much superstition and resistance, starting with our healthcare professionals and even in our casual conversations for such a sophisticated society, to think that talking about death might in some way precipitate death, I mean, I right. think is sort of what underlies a lot of the death anxiety. So interesting.
1: Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast
0: your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down.
1: When we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely.
0: I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of.
1: I'm Jana Panaridis. Today's episode is sponsored by Mediterranean ALF a family-owned and operated boutique-assisted living facility located in the heart of Palm Beach County, Florida. At Mediterranean ALF, you can rest easy knowing your family member is receiving affordable 24-hour care in a safe, home-like environment. Lois Perelson gross is passionate about compassionate and dignified care for all people in life and in death. Now in the midst of her second career focused on humanism in medicine, Lois previously worked at Goldman Sachs, where she was a vice president. She serves in leadership roles for a variety of healthcare, academic, and other not-for-profit organizations. And today, we're going to talk about one of them, where Lois sits on the board. It's a new nonprofit called Reimagine End of Life, and its mission is to publicly explore death and celebrate life through creativity and conversation. Reimagine End of Life recently held its first-ever festival in New York City, where innovators of all kinds came together to explore some big questions about life and death in a unique week-long series of over 300 events. We're going to talk about that with Lois and share a bit about a project of hers called Never the Right Time, which debuted at the festival. Lois Perelson-Gross has an MBA from Columbia University and MS in Narrative Medicine from Columbia, and in May of 2019, she'll receive her doctorate of ministry from Hebrew Union College in New York City, where she lives and joins us from today. Lois, I am thrilled to have you on the show. Welcome to the AgeWise Podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Jana. Delighted to be with you today.
1: So before we get into the festival, I would love to put this in context for listeners and talk a little bit about your background. Um, Were you born in New York City?
0: I was. Born and raised.
1: a, a (laughs) A native New Yorker. Wow. One of the things that I found really fascinating, and I'm sure you've been asked about this before, is... That your experience with healthcare has taken some really different forms <laughs> from the financing of major healthcare systems in your work at Goldman to the reshaping, if you will, of how we think about and practice end of life care. So I'd really be interested in hearing about that transition from your sort of first career in finance of healthcare systems to your second career in humanistic medicine and what inspired the change.
0: Delighted. Um, well, I sometimes refer to myself as a recovering investment banker. Um so it's been a long it's been a long process um and it seemed like an unlikely pairing but um but the other way I might describe myself is a lifelong frustrated position and so huh. I think the investment banking piece was just another way at trying to access Healthcare is essential to my work, and I think there was a lot of dancing around and trying to find the appropriate entry point for me, Mm -hmm. for myself, until I discovered, really through um, a long story of, of, of caring for a young teacher of one of my children who had received a terminal diagnosis. And finding really shockingly um, how primitive our society is in the way we approach end of life, from conversations around diagnosis to actual bedside, to policy and to casual conversation, which I think probably is what ultimately leads leads us to a conversation about reimagine. But. Clearly, there were lots of steps along the way between Goldman Sachs and reimagining end-of-life.
1: Did you deal with end-of-life issues in your own family? And if so, how did that affect you?
0: Yes. So, in fact, after I left Goldman, almost immediately after, my mom, who is uh, 83 and healthy and living in New York City, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And I um, was stunned how paralyzed both my parents were um, as educated new Yorkers with wonderful health care uh, very accessible to them and 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 the resources to access it and i was really not only struck but distressed at how and thinking about for people who had these kinds of advantages of both access and resources, Um, to be in such a compromised state with a diagnosis, that was frightening, but not terminal. And it made me really search about how people who didn't have such access um, and resources could begin to interface with the healthcare system. So that was sort of the, the beginning of my first-hand questioning and I became, because of my interest in healthcare and my, and my, just I think makeup as a researcher, became a little bit of an expert on breast cancer um, mm-hmm. and all the different aspects of treatment and diagnosis in New York City and who the experts were and so then I became a bit of a resource for other people. And then as it turned out, within I think the next year or so, my my eldest daughter's then second grade teacher at 27 was diagnosed with AML and a very aggressive form of leukemia. And she is Indian of Indian descent and really had nobody who could be her person in helping her navigate the healthcare system. And so I jumped in um, and became that person and went through the process of Selecting our healthcare team to working internationally to find a stem cell or bone marrow donor for her. She had no familial matches. She ultimately wound up having a stem cell transplant with a donor from the UK at Fred Hutch. Um, So went, you know, across the country to do it. And this was 14 years ago. And I'm delighted to say that she is very healthy has a a year-and-a-half-old, adopted baby, and is married.
1: Um, Oh,
0: wow. But that process, from her diagnosis to her journey, I think was really what brought me into the world of palliative care and end-of-life and spiritual care. Right. It was really a series of accidents. Um, It was my having a conversation following a meeting at um, my children's school about how I was coordinating a platelet drive for this teacher, as you probably know platelets often um, become scarce they have a short, much shorter life than blood and when one is having really intense chemotherapy one's in need and so they have to be available when one was when in need. Yeah. And the only way to ensure that was to have a specific reserve for her. And so that's what we coordinated. That's what I coordinated. And at that time, someone overheard my inviting some parents to participate in this endeavor and telling them about this teacher's plight. And she invited me in, another parent, to an effort at the United Jewish Appeal Federation of Jewish Philanthropies to to build a standalone Jewish hospice. If you can believe it in New York City, um all those years ago, so I guess this is again, you know, now fifteen years ago, there was no standalone Jewish hospice. And spiritual care and palliative care were really new terms mm-hmm. and So U J Federation was trying to spearhead this. And I joined this committee of course, wound up ultimately <laughs> chairing the committee, um, but really is where I got my education about spiritual care and palliative care and hospice. And that sort of launched this this passion, not only in seeing my daughter's teacher, Pia, and experiencing how she and we interfaced with a healthcare system, which in a I think, very basic way seemed much more about cure than about care. Right. And Not that we didn't hope and pray for cure, Uh but we really need to care along the way, Uh and I just could not believe again how primitive we are as a society in talking about the issues. I mean, whether it was my conversations with other parents um, or with the healthcare providers who were working to help Pia, Uh or just people in general. I began to learn about death as a a taboo conversation and about how even the physicians who were dealing with life and death, oncologists, palliative care doctors, had trouble talking about it. And it seemed like such an enormous missed opportunity for conversations with the patient and other loved ones. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that that was what began the journey, really.
1: Hmm. You must have a really interesting perspective on the correlation between health care, how it's financed in the U.S. vis-a-vis the quality of care in the U.S., which relies heavily on medical intervention, which you referred mm. to earlier as cure. I wonder if you could talk about that just briefly because your perspective is so unique.
0: Yeah, well, so most of my work as an investment banker and municipal finance at Goldman Sachs was financing what we would call bricks and mortar, so hospital uh-huh. expansion, uh-huh. Um, the new buildings, um, you know, through bonds. But what I would say is, I think as we all know, anecdotally even, that the bulk of funds that are spent in healthcare care is spent around end-of-life intervention. Right, um, right. And around interventions, which we may call extreme measures that may or may not extend life and I think through my own experience primarily as a palliative care hospital chaplain, and um, and just experience over the years of being involved in a variety of cases mm-hmm. in many different capacities that less aggressive care at certain points and palliative care, care for the whole person and the family in a, in a humane and thoughtful and compassionate way, can extend life, can improve quality of life for patient and loved ones, and also can dramatically reduce costs. Yeah. So this is also one of the ironies and one of the Real challenges that we have as as a society around thinking about the practical realities of healthcare at the end of life, both financially and in terms of what we want our care to be, or what we want our loved ones' care to be, on a day to day, minute to minute basis. You know, when we when we have a terminal diagnosis and we want to make as much of that time, and we want that time to be as comfortable and as dignified and potentially as rich. For both patient and loved ones mm-hmm. and there is that opportunity that opportunity is not typically met by the kinds of extreme measures or significant interventions of attempting cure at late stage in illness as it is in care which is why is refused mm-hmm. the care not cure right, um, right paradigm right,
1: right is it the Hertzberg palliative care institute that you referred to where you did your chaplain internship
0: yeah, so Mount Sinai in New York City, under Diane Meyer's leadership as, a you know, really one of the, I would say, mothers of, of the palliative care mm-hmm. movement um, mm-hmm. in this country, has really been on the forefront. And I worked as a chaplain intern last year or so in doing the clinical part of my doctorate of the ministry. Mm-hmm. And Sinai has both palliative care beds around the hospital within different units and also an inpatient unit of approximately thirteen beds Uh um, for palliative care patients and i was on that unit that thirteen bed unit last year Uh as a chaplain and it was it was a remarkable experience for many reasons but one reason is that the chaplain and the physicians work in tandem in palliative care particularly on the inpatient unit and so Everything from rounding with the attendings and fellows first thing in the morning to being involved in, in fact, often leading all the family meetings. Mm-hmm. The chaplains are, are right up there. They, they're they really in partnership with the physicians. That's mm-hmm. a very different model yeah. than not only throughout the country, but even in other parts of the hospital itself. It's it's quite a luxury where we think about end of life. In fact, spiritual care is something that most people really yearn for. Um, yeah, It it makes a lot of sense. Um, It
1: does, and it's not something that we associate with end-of-life care, right? (laughs) I mean, typically. And when you say 13-bed palliative care unit, as it were, we're talking about hospice care really here, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, we call it inpatient palliative care. Mm You know, I think technically, as hospice is defined for for people who have six months or less to live, the people who are inpatient palliative care in the unit at Sinai, it can be their last stop. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they're actually referred to hospice. They can also technically become hospice patients while they are inpatient in the unit. So it's a little, it's it's a little bit semantic and complicated, but Mm -hmm. it is, I guess it, it goes under the rubric of hospice because there probably isn't a patient that's been through the unit that has any more than six months to live. It's it's typically days.
1: Mm -hmm. So you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, what you discovered, but I wonder what your expectations were going into that experience and what you discovered about palliative care, if you
0: could maybe reflect on that a little bit. Sure. I think one of the things that seems much less obvious about palliative care but completely clear to me and I think to anybody who's experienced a palliative care team or a palliative care physician is that really what palliative care is is good old-fashioned Full humanistic care, I guess, or just good old-fashioned medical care. In other words, palliative care is designed to provide an extra layer of support mm-hmm. to a patient and family. I mean, to palliate um, mm-hmm. is to comfort or to soothe. But in my mind, palliative care is what we should all be receiving yeah. in every yeah. in yeah. every medical interaction mm-hmm. we have, no matter what our state of health or of good health or poor health is. And um, in fact, as we all know in despair, our healthcare system is not designed in a way for physicians to be able to have, for the most part to know and to listen to their patients. And in the best of all worlds, palliative care wouldn't exist as a separate subspecialty. Christ. It would be invisible. Right. <laughs> but, but there's also a big barrier, I think, for most people around the actual term palliative care and around the term hospice. Yeah. And there is a huge difference in that palliative care actually is for anyone with either a terminal or a chronic condition. Uh-huh. So people can live very long lives and be cared for by palliative care care doctors or have palliative care consults in conjunction with other kinds of treatment. I mean, asthma is a great example mm-hmm. of a chronic condition or mm-hmm. diabetes or that we know where people live for decades. Yeah. So I think, I think people fear palliative care consults because they think it means hospice and then they think it means a terminal diagnosis of some sort is people actually have funny reactions to the term chaplain, where they think if they see a chaplain walking (laughs) to the room, they think it must mean life is over. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and in fact, even when I've been a chaplain in other hospitals or healthcare settings where people are not terminally ill, the basic training is to walk into a room, introduce oneself, and just say, I'm I'm just here to see how you're feeling today Mm -hmm. so that they don't think that the angel of death is upon them. Right
1: so let's talk about reimagine end of Life and the festival first of all, how Reimagine
0: evolved as an organization yeah uh, it's a wonderful story so um, ideO, which is the I think the premier design thinking firm in the country based mm-hmm. in San Francisco, mm-hmm. set out a challenge in the summer of twenty six called let's reimagine end of Life and it was an online challenge that was open to everyone in the world and across all disciplines to start to think about how we can reimagine end of life. And as it happened, coincidentally, I entered that challenge with my narrative and graphic medicine colleagues, um, narrative medicine colleague and former professor Marsha Hurst, and my graphic medicine colleague and collaborator, M.K. Sirwick, also known as a comic nurse. Uh-huh. And we entered because we had had this concept that grew out of a lot of independent work I had done as a student in the narrative medicine program about end-of-life literature and resources that, even though there was much out there, people really weren't accessing it, Mm -hmm. and that comics and graphic narratives might provide a unique opportunity for an entry point into end-of-life conversations. Mm -hmm. So we decided, since we had been, I guess, how should I say it, showing this idea to a variety of people and not really able to figure out how to move it off the ground. We were Mm -hmm. actually modeling it after a campaign that had been on the New York City mass transit system in the 90s called Decisions, um, Mm -hmm. which was Mm -hmm. a comic, almost a, a graphic comic soap opera, which unfolded over about 18 months. It was in English and Spanish, and it was a CDC mta collaboration about a couple, Julio and Marisol, where Julio learns that he's HIV positive.
1: I remember um, that campaign. I was living in New yes. York at the time, and I remember yes. that. Yeah, that was yes. really powerful. Yeah. It was
0: really powerful. Yeah. And I think the conclusion yeah. of this independent work that I did in the Narrative Medicine program was that we needed some kind of a mm-hmm. public-facing program, and the Decisions Campaign really stuck in my mind and Marcia Hurst's mind, and we thought that might be a way to move the conversation forward. And interestingly, at that point, I think it was right as, or right before Roz Chast's graphic memoir, Can We Talk About Something More Pleasant, was going to be published, Mm -hmm. and also New Yorker cartoonist Roz Chast. Mm -hmm. And also before there was going to be a big show, of her work at the Museum of the City of New York. And we thought we might be able to combine all of these things and coordinate it with National Healthcare Decision-Making Day and launch this big public campaign. And as it turned out, the politics of getting such a program onto the MTA, subways and buses, was a lot more complicated, and and had changed and was in flux with, at that point, a new mayoral administration, Mm -hmm. and we sort of, we tabled it, um, and when the IDEO challenge came up, we decided we would put it forward. So anyway, we had actually quite some success in the IDEO campaign and got Mm -hmm. to the final rounds. We weren't chosen as one of the 10 finalists, but we knew about what was going on. We're really taken with the process and thrilled that IDEO had put forth this challenge, And because the IDEO challenge was so successful, so it ran from I think June to August of 2016, Brad Wolf, who had been one of the key people at IDEO or maybe the key person in charge of the challenge, decided that there was so much energy that Idea would launch a live festival in San Francisco around this concept of reimagining end of life. And so in the fall of 2016, October of 2016, really two years to the date almost that um, Reimagine New York happened, Idea launched this first live festival. And there were somewhere around 75, I think, events mm-hmm. over about a week uh-huh. and 2,000 tickets processed. Um, and this wow. was all put together on a shoestring. And while I was unable to attend, my dear friend who became the founding board chair of Reimagine attended. And one of the things that was most striking to her about the festival was that there were as many people under 40 as there were over 40. Yeah, that's Um, fascinating. Yes, and so she was just... Completely swept away by what IDEO had accomplished, and she approached Brad Wolf and said, I love this. We need to figure out how to take this whole concept of reimagining end of life in these festivals and repeat it and bring it around the country. And so they formed a partnership. She invited me and others who had been involved in the challenge, originally a handful mm-hmm. of people from IDO mm-hmm. and other palliative care physicians and other people in the field as sort of founding board members. So under, under our leadership, News leadership and the rest of the board. The second Reimagine End of Life festival happened in April of 2018 in San Francisco and at that festival there were 175 events, hmm. 10,000 tickets processed and the mayor of San Francisco declared it Reimagine End of Life Week San Francisco which oh, wow, so quite cool. remarkable. Wow. It took hmm. over San Francisco in uh-huh. a wonderful way and then as you know and referred to, the first Reimagine End of Life Festival New York took place at the end of October, and we had actually three hundred and fifty events. Oh wow! Um, here wow. and um, wow. it was uh, it was quite something.
1: Yeah. Right in places that you might not expect too, like hospitals and senior citizen centers and cemeteries.
0: Absolutely, <laughs> I mean, which in some ways seem completely obvious. Yeah, ways right. Not at all. <laughs> right. But you know, also in very unlikely venues like museums. Sure. And, I mean, community centers might also make sense, but, you know, nightclubs, mm-hmm. and, I mean, it was comedy to, I, I think I should just back up and say, there are really three pillars of reimagine: preparation, wonderment, and remembrance. And so mm-hmm. everything falls under those three essential sort of ways of reimagining end of life mm-hmm. and celebrating, not only trying to end the societal taboo and stigma, and discomfort with talking about death, but also realizing that in doing that, we give ourselves the opportunity to celebrate life.
1: We'll be back in a moment to our conversation with Lois Perilson-Gross. Support for the AgeWise podcast comes from Mediterranean ALF, a family-owned and operated six-bed facility located in the heart of Palm Beach County, Florida. An alternative to traditional living facilities, Mediterranean ALF offers boutique-style accommodations where residents receive personalized care tailored to their needs in an environment that feels like home. Rest easy knowing your family member is being attended to 24 hours a day by highly trained, caring staff. To schedule a private tour, call 561-644-2353. I want to get to the graphic medicine-related events, yeah. but before we do, I want to just quickly ask how you account for the popularity of this topic. Because it is something that people are uncomfortable talking about, and yet it seems like with each festival there are more events and more attendees. So I wonder, yeah. what's your take on that?
0: I think people were really hungry for a way in to talking about it. I mean, we're all terminal and we know that we live in this death-denying culture. Mm. I think it's not only that, the demographics. I mean, we, we know that we're, we're a rapidly aging society. But I think there was a period of time where there was really very little out in the public, from Sherwin-Newland's How We Die bestseller mm. to, you know, an occasional... And I'm really thinking about literature, but I think it is telling as we just sort of look at the bestseller list over time. Um, we went from How We Die to maybe Tuesdays with Maury right. to the last lecture. And then there was a little mini wonderful explosion of, the. as, as I mentioned earlier, Roz Chast. Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, mm-hmm. Paul and Lucy Kalanithi's When Breath Becomes Air. Mm-hmm. I think we started seeing that people were really eager to find a way in and to begin to feel comfortable. I think there's so much talking about death. I think there's so much superstition and resistance, starting with our healthcare professionals. And even in our casual conversations, for such a sophisticated society, to think that talking about death might in some way precipitate death. I mean, I think it's sort of what underlies a lot of the death anxiety. It's so interesting. Um, It is so interesting and and really sort of counterintuitive in a lot of ways.
1: Well, I mean, I also think that that maybe that the depictions of violence in the media have influenced American attitudes about death to the extent that it seems like we have sort of accepted that there's only one conversation about death, and it's extremely negative and it's extremely violent, whether it's a mass shooting, video game, a TV program filled with violence. Our depictions of death in the media are very violent, they tend to be. So for me, it sounds like it's almost like,
0: well, wait a minute, there's another way to Look at this and yes. talk
1: talk about it. Yes,
0: know? that's a great point. I do think that they are terribly violent. I also think that they're often unrealistically n- not hopeful, but they're just completely unrealistic in yeah. their portrayal. So, yeah. for example, <laughs> yeah. you know all the medical shows right. from Grey's Anatomy to right. whatever, where you know CPR is administered and people who would undoubtedly not recover, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or receive CPR and then are you know up and, and jogging around the hospital floor, you know, three <laughs> right. minutes later or something like that. Um, So we we present these extremes about near-death experience or deaths that don't allow for a realistic way in. And I think also our reflection of how we don't have any normal way. We just don't have the vocabulary. And I think that's a very big part of it. I mean, we think about how we face illness. It's using battle language, Hmm. typically. We battle it. We fight it. We win. We didn't win. We're brave in our battle or not. It's all about fight. And, you know, we all want to live or most people want to live as long and as well as possible. But there is also the possibility that any one of us won't have that opportunity. And so then we're faced with the opportunity, and I I do think opportunity is an important way to think about it, of living well for as long as we possibly can in order to have as good an ending as we possibly can, as good a death. Um, And the reality is most people, in fact, do want to talk about it because it is a huge fear it's just they're afraid that they don't have the words and they don't have the space or the moment that feels yeah, right
1: yeah um, yeah to do it so the graphic medicine related events at this festival were fascinating there are lots as I said there are lots of different kinds of events at this festival but you were heavily involved in the graphic medicine track so tell us a little bit about that and maybe you could talk about what is graphic medicine for people who don't know
0: Sure. So graphic medicine is a field that was, I would say, created by a group of clinicians who sort of found each other around the world. My friend and collaborator, M.K. Stewart, the comic nurse, and Ian Williams, who's a physician in the UK, were literally, I think, both found out about each other uh, around the time that that they discovered a graphic novel called Mom's Cancer, which made them realize that there were other clinicians who were using comics and cartoons to describe either their own experience or their patient's experience with illness and with, with end of life. Mm-hmm. And MK's story was is that she had been a nurse in Chicago on an AIDS ward and when they closed the ward and she was went into really a period of mourning, she found herself drawing comics to deal with her grief and found that such a powerful tool. So then she wound up introducing herself or being introduced to Ian Williams and a whole group of others who were creating comics or graphic narratives around illness and end of life. And that's how graphic medicine started. And I think the idea is that stories can be told in a very effective, poignant way using graphics and often in comic form. And I think MK's, in my thinking, is that the association of comics is as a non-threatening art form. Yeah. Most of us throughout the world encounter comics at a very early age. And whether they're funny or not, they offer a way in to so many different topics that seems, again, non-threatening is is always the way I think about it Mm -hmm. and accessible. Mm -hmm. And for clinicians, both as a tool to process grief or explain illness or any aspect of a medical issue, or condition, the opportunity to do it with pictures and words, where one enters a frame and follows both visual cues and different layers of conversation that the comic graphic form employs, Mm -hmm. is an extraordinarily powerful tool. Um, yeah,
1: especially yeah. because it's abbreviated and so it's yeah. not laden with dense medical terminology. It's very accessible. So you were involved in a two prong exhibit of comic art at the fifty third street branch at the New York Public Library. On the upstairs level there were the death panels, comics that help us face right. end of life, and your own work was featured on the lower main level of the library. Right. So tell us about those two different exhibits. Of course, I really <laughs> want to hear about Never the Right Time. You're but, <laughs> but it's, it's about both of them. Thank you.
0: Yes. So, M.K. and I curated this show. We had done a show of End of Life Comics for Reimagine in San Francisco. We've just had so much interest and excitement around End of Life Comics. And in both places, we also had panels of the cartoonists talk about their work. Mm-hmm. So some of these comics just existed, and artists were generous enough to lend them to us for the show. Some of them were specifically committed for Reimagine, and there's a whole series of Emily Flake, who is a New Yorker cartoonist and also a performer. Comedian mm-hmm. and say a graphic novelist who created a series of eight comics that I commissioned actually through a fellowship that I had from the Narrative Medicine Program, and so Emily's were a big part of the show, and then she was part of the panel as well. So that was a great opportunity because those comics were meant to be conversation starters, yeah. and. They are more geared towards millennials, I would say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, as we talked about, with the beginning of Reimagine and my friend and founding board chair Jeannie Blaustein's experience with the population that attended it, you know, millennials are seemingly much more comfortable talking about end-of-life than their parents. Right. (laughs) Well, their baseline is 9-11. I mean, that's true. You know, um, that's such that. a fascinating point. I really have had, hadn't thought about that, but you're well, absolutely right. Yeah, tragically. Yeah. but but yes, I think we all, um, you know, having experienced those kinds of tragedies, are more focused on our own mortality. Although, interestingly enough, as a segue, never the right time happened in part because I am part of a pilot program in the Jewish community to have facilitated grassroots advanced care planning conversations using the Respecting Choices model, mm-hmm. which is the model that is sort of the gold standard for facilitated advanced care planning conversations mm-hmm. that was developed mm-hmm. you know, by Gunderson Medical System in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And in that program, what we found was that even in cases where we were able to have wonderful facilitated conversations with members of our community, in the cases where, let's say, parents of millennials had a child, a millennial child, or any child, it could be a baby boomer child, mm-hmm. as the healthcare agent or proxy, uh-huh, uh-huh. they felt that there was enormous resistance from that child to talk about their own wishes. And so the idea was to create something that would be never the right time I would best describe as a bridge to having these advanced care planning slash end of life conversations. Mm -hmm. And it is a mini comic anthology, which starts off with a humorous approach, but is a oblique way into dealing with our resistance our superstition and our anxiety about talking about end of life and provides facts around the you know, percentage of people who want to die at home versus the percentage of people who die in hospitals mm-hmm. and what having these conversations, how that translates into good depth. And that these are also conversations not just for people who are aged or aging, but for anybody who's 18 or older, in mm-hmm. fact.
1: And the comics that are included, are they all by Roz Chess?
0: Nope. There are, great question, there are somewhere between 15, I think, 15 different artists. There are many razes in it. They're all New Yorker cartoonists. Okay. They were existing comics. So that's the main piece. I then created what I call sort of a baby sister for millennials to Never the Right Time, which uh-huh. is called Let's Talk About the Stupid Elephant, which is using Emily Flake's panels. And one of the panels that she has that she did for this Narrative Medicine Fellowship Commission was an older man in a hospital bed with two maybe millennial children at bedside sort of arguing and an elephant standing behind the bed with a trunk wrapped around this, <laughs> the man's neck. And the caption is, OK. I'll okay, let's talk about the stupid elephant. So that's where it gets its name. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Never the Right Time is the main one. but
1: And that was a banner exhibit that you had at the library, right? Yeah.
0: So yeah. the idea was that it was excerpts from Never the Right Time, and there were four banners. So there were maybe 12 pages from Never the Right Time, which is 20-some-odd pages. Um, in it so that people could get a sense of what the piece was like and how they might be able to use it. Mm -hmm.
1: And so what was the reaction? What sort of reactions
0: did you observe in people who were looking at the exhibit? Well, I have to say, so, you know, it's hard to stand in a library that was a really sure. tricky piece um, <laughs> and, have, and have extended conversations, yeah. but the banners were up in other places. Uh-huh. Um, they were up at the JCC in New York. There were a variety of events from Theater of War to Death Over Dinner, lots of different events. The JCC was one of the partners of Reimagine, and the JCC uh-huh. is one of the partners in this What Matters Caring Conversations at that end of life, pilot program in the Jewish community that I referred to. So there were all sorts of overlaps that were Mm -hmm. going on, and I had also piloted Never the Right Time in What Matters group facilitation sessions, and the response was so positive. Before, I was able to secure all of the copyrights, which really didn't happen until right before Reimagine. Mm. People were trying <laughs> to grab them out of my hands, and they, they know it was wow. sort of universal. Like, this is just exactly what I need to get the conversation going. Uh-huh. And I think we all know, you know, whether it's a difficult conversation of any sort, if we can start either, you know, in a positive way or even better, in a non-threatening and funny way, yeah. we can get into the most challenging topics in a way that we never could have imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's been, I have to say, it's been a really wonderful, affirming experience to, to have created Never the Right Time. And it's very important to me that it's free and accessible. And there is a website up and now we're working on trying to figure out how to roll it out in a broader way. To, yeah, that was my yeah. next
1: question. What are your plans in terms of finding an audience beyond the festival? And you you just answered it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I
0: think, I think yes. And so, as you know, you know there are lots of organizations that have pretty prominent you know, national online presence, and so we're partnering with them. And the other thing we've done is, in the back of Never the Right Time, we have all these resources for advanced care planning oh, linked to great. it yeah. so that people can use it not only as part of the What Matters program, but can use it just generally as an access point.
1: Right. I had the privilege of seeing it in previews at the Comics and... Medicine Conference in August. You were presenting virtually, but... um, Exactly, I was (laughs) virtually there. (laughs) You were virtually there. But one of the things I really loved about what I saw was the juxtaposition of the facts with these very humorous panels that sort of broke the icing kept you engaged with what might otherwise be considered rather dry material. Not that it was presented dryly, but these facts are very important. And you, from what I saw, did a really great job of providing a counterpoint to these facts with these panels that were hilarious. So I'm really excited to see the next stage of uh, Never the Right Time and spread the word. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so I wonder if you could, we'll wrap it up shortly, but I wonder if you could reflect on some of your more memorable memories of the festival.
0: Yeah, you know, there were so many high points from the intimate to the broad. So, I mean, intimately to be in conversations with people at a death over dinner event, and to have perfect strangers sit around a dinner table and break bread and talk about their most intimate thoughts, you know, with each other and fears, which is what happens. I don't know if you're familiar with Death Over Dinner, but it was something that was created by a relatively young man named Michael Hebb. It's a free online resource, and the idea is that one can curate a dinner party for any group of people. So you go on to Death Over Dinner, and it provides this really remarkable, robust website where one can enter and describe the invitees that one wants to host at a Death Over Dinner dinner party, Hmm. and then in Describing the audience, then one is also able to pick resources that the invitees can read listen to or watch. So there's reading material, there are podcasts, there are videos, and they're all tailored to whatever the group that one is inviting to a death over dinner experience might have. I see. And one thing that we've done in the Jewish community with the What Matters program is there's a Jewish addition to death over dinner, which was a later stage mm-hmm. model. And so we've had these conversations in community, and I have participated in a variety of them and to really see people and to experience people talking deeply and personally about issues that they 've never really allowed themselves to think about and certainly haven 't articulated to their loved ones is enormously gratifying it 's also really moving to stand next to somebody who 's looking at an end of life comic up an exhibit and just laughing hysterically uh-huh. um, and then you know turning to to someone saying, well, you know this would really help me have this conversation with my husband with my child and there was a remarkable Panel that Dr. Jennifer Brokaw moderated with uh, Dr. Ira Byock, palliative care physician, and Wendy McNaughton, who's a I guess one would call a graphic narrative artist based in California, and Lady Bird Morgan, who's a hospice nurse and had been a, I think in charge of nursing care at the Zen Hospice in San Francisco. And anyway, Wendy had done a project, a piece on the San Quentin prison, and a group called. Brothers Keepers, I mean it was a narrative essay about inmates and end of life. That was extraordinarily wow. powerful huh. and stunning in both how it educated all of us about uh, how people die in prison, and also hmm. the humanity that still is so present in people, whether they've been incarcerated for you know months or years, um, and now they want to be able to help each other have good and humane deaths within a prison. Wow. With the prison environment. So yeah. those were sort of some highlights for me. I mean, Roz Chast was also in conversation with a rabbi on the Monday of Reimagine, which was the Monday following the Pittsburgh tragedy. Yeah. And I think for me, as particularly in thinking about comics and laughter as an antidote to the maudlin and tragic aspects of death, mm-hmm. um, was really helpful. And I think we all felt an, a little bit uncomfortable that there was a time coincidence of Reimagine happening right when Pittsburgh happened, Mm -hmm. and I think as it turned out, people needed to laugh so desperately by Monday night, Mm -hmm. and being able to do that, you know, with Roz and her comics was not just therapeutic for everybody, it was also, I think, as I said for me, personally, professionally, a wonderful reaffirmation of what comics can do.
1: Yeah. Where do you anticipate the next reimagine end-of-life event taking place, and how can people get updates?
0: Great ideas great question. So I think tentatively, the next Reimagine is being planned for San Francisco in the fall of 2019. The goal for Reimagine is to be, I think, in many places around the country. I think we're still very much in a pilot phase, Uh and there was a lot that happened within this first year. Um, I think we want to take a step back and really think about the model and how best to share it with as broad an audience as possible in as, I don't want to say in as efficient a way, but it's an intense project to launch these festivals. Oh, sure, I can imagine. um, Yeah, and so I think we want the quality to be high and an interest to be high. And I think one of the things that we're also working on as an organization is how to continue to be present with people who attended and people who haven't. Again, in this continuing quest to enrich conversations around end of life and to normalize them, to really actually reconfigure them into an opportunity to have deeper, more intimate, and more meaningful conversations with friends and relatives while we're alive.
1: Right. So in terms of people who didn't come to the event, I wonder what advice you would have for people who are uncomfortable with the topic to encourage them to come to the next festival, or people who think it might be sad and depressing.
0: So I think a bunch of different things. One is if they go onto the Let's Reimagine End of Life website, what one can see is the vast diversity of events that were offered in San Francisco and in New York. You can search by, you know, everything from comedy to advanced care planning. Reimagine does have resources available for advanced care planning, and I think I'm hoping that we're going to be able to really build out our website and to be able to offer resources like Never the Right Time and other humorous ways in to these conversations that may be less threatening. I also just recommend for people generally, and all, all these books that I've just mentioned, I think Being Immortal is a wonderful starting point for people. It's not a, a funny way in, mm-hmm. but it's a profoundly moving way in yeah. um, to Gawande's book. So those are just some quick ideas, and I think The Death Over Dinner is is a great resource. And one other that I, I might mention, too, is something called Go Wish, which is a card game that's available free of charge, oh. and is something that Don Gross, who is a fantastic palliative care physician and educator based in San Francisco who we were lucky enough to have it reimagined in New York and in San Francisco uses all the time she in fact says she and her husband play Go Wish on their anniversary every year Oh, wow. um, it's okay. part of their family tradition and again there are a few card games that's a great one there's another one called Hello and that people do again to think about having a con- starting off a conversation with a card game or with a comic is an unlikely way to think about these very sacred and poignant conversations and, you know, often frightening for people. And these kinds of tools make them accessible is is the word that always comes to mind and actually enjoyable. You know, we're still all in the early phases in, in our society of moving this conversation forward. And it's exciting to see people in all professions, from the arts to medicine, eager to do that. And change takes a while, but I do think change is happening. In my family, my kids always say, you know, Mom, you're the person who no one wants to sit next to next to a dinner party because no one wants to talk to you about death. Um, And and the reality is that inevitably, when I tell people what I do, they are so eager to talk about it with me because they don't know how to talk about it with, with other people, and they don't know how to begin to think about it for themselves. So I, you know, I just feel so fortunate, and you know, I'd say they're much more eager to talk to a palliative care chaplain who works in graphic medicine and <laughs> champions end of life comics than they are to talk to a Goldman Sachs investment banker. <laughs> That's deadly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We've been speaking with Lois Perilson-Gross about her work focused on humanism in medicine and about Reimagine End of Life, a not-for-profit organization which envisions a world in which we're all able to reflect on why we're here, prepare for a time when we won't be, and live fully right up until the end. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to this fascinating project, along with some other links to references that Lois made in the show. But if you want to jump in right now, go to letsreimagine.org. That's all one word, letsreimagine.org, to learn more about this fascinating project. Lois, thank you so much for being on the show and for your commitment to compassionate and dignified care for all people in life and in death. I salute you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jen. I salute you and all the fantastic
0: work that you're doing.
1: That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, if you're getting something out of it, I want you to tell your friends about it because I want everyone to know you're not alone. Your stories matter and your voices have power. So share this with your friends. Share the love and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritas. See you next time, and remember every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.